Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church. Here at FBC, it's our mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and we hope that this message helps you continue to grow in your faith. This audio is property of First Baptist Church, but feel free to give away copies of this message in the hopes that others will be impacted by what they hear. For more information about FBC, or if you want to stay connected with us, visit our website at fbclloyd.ca or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. Let's pray together. God, thank you that you are here with us and that you speak to us and that you care about us. I pray as we hop into the text this morning that you would do that, that you would continue to speak to us and share with us your love. We love you so much, God. Amen. Why don't you guys grab a seat? Uh, We were going to have, it was supposed to be Doug preaching this morning, but after going zero for two in Bible trivia earlier, like you guys saw, we thought maybe we should get someone up here who knows something about the Bible. Um, Those people were busy, so here I am. But uh, so, yeah, so it's Father's Day, obviously, and uh, my sister, my wife, and I have a group chat because we were like, hey, let's get something for dad. And so this morning, I just texted my sister and said, it's done. It's like a few hours after we'd been up, we're at the church. And that prompted Talcy to come find me and be like, oh, sorry, I totally forgot it was Father's Day. Um, and not say, hey, happy Father's Day, just say, oh, sorry, I forgot. And I was like, okay. And uh, so today, I, I'm gonna, I get to work, and then I get to drive to Manitoba. So I don't totally have this Father's Day holiday figured out yet, but um, does, it doesn't really seem like... Yeah, I don't really get it. But anyways, hope you all have a really good Father's Day. I wasn't here last week because uh, last weekend because I was at school all week and then went on the youth retreat, but I caught up with Doug's message to the podcast, and uh, I really loved it because he, he's dealing with a text that's so central to our four-point strategy here, uh, the idea of thinking in and out as defined by Jesus' teaching that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. Um, So if you weren't here last Sunday, I'd really encourage you to hop online, the app, podcast, YouTube, like a thousand ways you can watch or listen to it. Check it out. Really awesome message. This is actually my last opportunity to speak during uh, the Mark series, which I'm really sad about. Uh, It's been such an enriching journey to be able to spend this much time in the gospel of Mark and spend this time with the text and be able to share with you guys. I hope that this series has been helpful for you guys. We have a few weeks left. This is just my last time up here. Um, This morning is going to be a little bit different. Um, What I generally try to do is when I get, we're in Mark 13 this morning, when I get to the text that we're going to be talking about is I try to, rather than going in and saying, well, you know, I need to have like a three-point sermon or this, or is try to approach the text and say, okay, well, then how would this have me share? Or what would this lead me to? Where would I arrive from this? And if you know the Gospel of Mark, uh, that gets pretty tricky when you get to uh, Mark chapter 13. It's by far the most complicated, convoluted, difficult, murky portion of the Gospel of Mark, bar none. Um, And the reason is this. Um, 
Throughout Scripture, if you've read the Bible, you'll know that there are a lot of genres of Scripture. Uh, you know that there's poetic reading. So you're reading, all of a sudden you're in a poem or a psalm. Uh, you know that there are narratives. Most of the Gospel of Mark is at parables, these stories that Jesus just kind of makes up um, to, to teach like a spiritual principle. Um, there are uh, creeds. There are everyone's favorite genealogies, you know, where we really come to life. Um, all these different texts. Um, and there's this one genre, and it's called an apocalypse, or an apocalyptic text, apocalypse. Y'all are thinking zombies, not quite the Bible's uh, kind of just there with an apocalypse. And what apocalypse is, is uh, it's a prophetic text where um, the prophet in the Old Testament, or Jesus here, or whoever, is speaking... Uh, about something in a way larger than life kind of way. They're using figurative language, they're using metaphors, they're using imagery, and it's intense. Um, it's actually really intense. You'll be reading through scripture, you'll be reading the narrative of Mark, all of a sudden you get to chapter 13, and you might assume that you fell asleep and you're having a nightmare because it's kind of scary, it's, it's, it's wild. And this is definitely the hardest genre of scripture to know how to interpret well and, and to, you, you know, you read it and you say, well, then what? Maybe you're familiar with this if you've read the book of Revelation or maybe Daniel, some of the Old Testament prophets. They've got apocalyptic portions or, or, or whatever. And one thing you'll notice with these apocalyptic texts throughout scripture is that whatever they mean, in, in a large way, they seem to kind of be singing with one voice. They seem pretty unanimous. They kind of seem like a choir who's kind of saying the same thing in a lot of ways. Not, not all of it, but you, you read this, you read Revelation, you read parts of Daniel, other parts of the Old Testament, and you'll, and you'll notice a lot of borrowed language, a lot of borrowed images where they're sharing. So, for example, the book of Revelation is 404 verses long, and some scholars would say that it has 550 references to the Old Testament text. 550 references and 404. Like, I mean, I want to see his work cited page at the end of that, you know, like this is, this is a lot of borrowed language. And, and so the question is, well, when you read an apocalypse, what does it mean? What I want to do this morning is take a little bit of a different approach. A lot of times what we do is we take the text and we kind of try to offer a, like a spiritual application or just kind of a, you know, so this is what this means for us nowadays. And I think generally that's probably what we should be trying to get out of Scripture. Because of the nature of this text and because throughout the history of the church we've wrestled with these texts and had different opinions on how to interpret them, what I want to do this morning is more just offer a teaching kind of about the text, not a teaching from the text, but more of a teaching about the text. At the very end, I'll offer, I think, what we could take as a helpful spiritual application for this week and how we could process some of this, but I'm going to kind of go a little bit more Bible nerdy, uh, intellectually driven. Jesus says to uh, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, strength, and mind. I think a lot of times we stop after heart and soul, and we're like, yeah, we're good. Um, and so I want to engage your minds a little bit this morning, and what I'll be teaching is, is a, before we get into there, is four interpretive views that the church has approached this text with, or apocalyptic text throughout history. Now, we're not going to be mailing out tests like this week or anything, so don't like sweat it too much. This isn't like when you meet Jesus one day, he's like, okay, what are the four views that the church has, you know, like, this is not salvation stuff. Um, but I want to offer these in a really unbiased way. When I teach about something like this, my goal would be to say, this is a secondary thing. So here are some of the main options. I want you to spend time with Scripture, deciding where you land, and then we can agree on the gospel. Uh, that, that's a, so so my, this morning, I'm going to teach about these views, and you can see them in your bulletin. You can see them in the app notes. I'm going to drop these four. They're kind of big theological terms. 
offer the definition I've come up with them that's hopefully short and concise and helpful. And as we move through the text, we'll look at how some of these views would actually interact with the text. We can't do all of it because we don't have like 10 hours, but um, we'll, we'll actually make some comments as we go, and then we'll also make some general comments, and then at the end, uh, we'll bring it in for a landing. So the first historical view for how you might, and this is in no particular order, the first one is idealism. The text offers transcendent spiritual principles rather than a prediction of actual events. Before I go on, I just want to highlight this again. I, I, my goal this morning is for you guys to not be able to tell which of these four views I hold to. Not because I'm embarrassed of it. If you're dying to know, you can come find me later or talk to me sometime. If you know me really well, you might know. Um, I think it's okay for Christians to have different, like all four of these views, there have been Christian scholars and are Christian scholars that hold to them. And I think it's okay for us Christians, or I think it's good for Christians to understand that it's okay for us to disagree on some stuff. Um, I think that's hard for us, you know, it's like, they're a Christian, I'm a Christian, we have the same views on every, like, they voted for that party, I voted for this party, which one of us is more spiritual, you know, obviously me. Uh, This is territory where I think it's okay for us to say, hey, you know what, we might not all be on the same page with this, but we can agree on the gospel and who Jesus is. So anyways, I'm going to go on, hopefully I'll be as objective and fair as I can. Some of the views I'll have a few more comments on just by the nature of kind of how more concise and and maybe less open-ended the views are, but they're all fair. Idealism, it offers transcendent spiritual principles. So when we read Mark 13, what idealists would say is they would say, well, this isn't like really just like specific historical events. They would say, These are, th- this is kind of a, an allegory or an analogy. It's a story, uh, you know, with all, all this poetic language and imagery that would tell us about spiritual life, that from this we can glean spiritual principles. The next one would be historicism. So historicists would say that the text surveys the whole of church history. So it's not just a specific event, but an apocalypse like Revelation or this would be kind of an unfolding of church history for all time, okay? And then the third one would be uh, preterism. And what preterism would say is that the prophecies of the text were fulfilled shortly after it was written. So what Jesus says here they would say, happens shortly after he says it, it comes true, and now in 2019, we look back on what's already happened. And then futurism would say that the prophecies of the text will be fulfilled in the future. So in 2019, we read what Jesus says, and we say, this is still going to happen one day. Uh, We don't know when. Now, with all of these views, there are some nuances in between, and so, for example, the preterist would not say, uh, all of this has happened. They would say there's still some that's going to point towards a far future, and all of them would have concessions here and there. But in general, these are the four views. I'm not going to. My goal this morning isn't for you to be like, oh, this is the one I'm going to pick. That, um, but to go home and spend some time with the text and understand this is a really vast text. I love that God is so mysterious. I love that the gospel is so wide and deep and unimaginable that we have the. We have the basics, we have the main and plain things in front of us, but there's still so much depth to mine. This is how I think about it. One day, if you've been married or if you've gotten married or if you get married one day, what happens is you start dating someone and then after a certain amount of time, depending on who you are, you get married. And at the point you say, I do, there are a lot of things you know about your spouse, hopefully. Um, And uh, what you probably know are a lot of the really main, big, important things about them. What makes them tick? what's, What's really important to them? But there are a lot of things you don't know. And years down the road, you can, you can either decide, I already know enough, and you can just kind of be lazy and not really dig into that relationship more and get to know more, or else you can say for years to come, I want to get to know them more. I want to figure out like, all the weird little things about them, all these buried opinions that maybe they don't even know they always have. And I, I think it's the same with God, is that 
a lot of times we say, well, you know, I already, you know, like I know John 3.16, I know some of the Old Testament stories, so whatever. There's so much depth to God. You could spend time studying this book every day, and at the end of your life, you still will have more that you can dig into. And I actually think that's really exciting. Some of you are like, yeah, that analogy makes sense because my marriage is an apocalypse, okay? So that's not the point I'm getting at. Do not speak that out loud uh, right now. I'm just joking. Um, okay, so we're going we're gonna to hop into the text. The first few verses, these views don't really come into play uh, because everyone agrees on what these first few verses mean in general. So this is what's going on. Jesus has just finished a long day of ministry at the temple. Uh, you guys were here last week. Hopefully, or if you weren't, catch up. Uh, Doug was preaching how Jesus at the temple, long day of ministry, he's talking to teachers of the law, people at the temple. He sees this widow just give her like last couple cents away. And then at the end of the day, they're taking off from the temple, and this is what goes on. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. They're leaving the temple, and one of his disciples is like, Jesus, look at how incredible this temple is. This, this building is mind-blowing. Now, one of the reasons it's mind-blowing, actually, is because Herod the Great, in about 20 BC, the temple had been destroyed, it got rebuilt, and then in 20 BC, Herod came in, probably to appease the Jewish people that they had imperialized. He kind of rebuilt and renovated the temple and made it this epic, glorious building. And so here's this disciple walking out the temple. I mean, the temple is huge to the Jewish people, and he's just bragging on how awesome the temple is. I don't know if that's how you guys like interact here at FBC. If you invite a friend who's never been to FBC, and as you're leaving, you're like, by the way, did you check out this sweet pew color? Yeah, you know? Do you notice our roof never lets any rain in when it rains, you know? Said no one ever. Um, you know, but they're just, they're like, man, Jesus, look at this. And Jesus, serious killjoy moment, says, oh, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on, on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Disciple says, hey, look at this amazing building. Jesus is like, yeah, it's going to get trashed. And so what we know that this is about is that in the 70 AD, you've maybe heard about um, the year 70 AD, you've maybe heard about the Roman persecutions that broke out against the Israelites and the Christians. Maybe you've heard of Emperor Nero. He's kind of the, the really famous persecutor. He burned Christians and they were persecuting these people. This kind of war breaks out. In the year 70 AD, now we've got this new emperor. His name is Vespasian. And they come in and they lay siege to Jerusalem. They lay siege to Jerusalem. And what that means is they kind of are starving them out. They're, they're making them starve. And then eventually they attack and they destroy the temple and they burn it down. And this is devastating for the Jewish people. And so this is what Jesus is talking about. A few decades later in 70 AD, It happens. And then it says, as Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. So that means that they've continued this journey from the temple. They're walking out, they're leaving, they're talking as they go, they end up at the Mount of Olives. And that's actually why this text, it's in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 as well, is called the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse is this apocalypse that Jesus gives in the middle of the gospel. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? So, so far, Mark 13 has been really easy. One disciple says, hey, look at how amazing the temple is. Jesus says, it's going to be destroyed. And then the disciples say, well, when? This is pretty easy so far. But here's where it gets crazy. This is where the views come into play. And again, I hope you find this interesting. I mean, this is fascinating stuff to me. You don't have to figure this all out, but I hope you'll wrestle with this complicated text rather than just retreating from it. So... The idealist would say, well, 
Jesus is going to answer that question of when this will happen by going more into spiritual metaphors and kind of talking about persecution and some great trouble to offer spiritual principles for Christians who are trying to follow him. Uh, The historicist would say, Jesus isn't going to answer that question directly, but what he's going to talk about is a bunch of uh, big kind of metaphors and signs and figurative language that's going to describe the persecution of the church throughout history, the movement of the church throughout history. The preterist would say he's going to answer that question. Like they, he says the temple's going to be destroyed. They say when, and he just answers that question. And then the futurist would say that Jesus, rather than answering that question directly, um, he talks about what's going to happen at the end of all time. So he adds about 2,000 plus years. Well, we don't know how long, but more than 2,000 years, uh, arguably. And, and then he starts talking about what's going to happen at the end of time. These are all valid views held by Christian scholars, and hopefully you'll kind of wrestle with it as you continue to read Scripture. So, that being said, Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. So I'm not going to tell you about all four views and all of these, but I'll give you a little bit of an idea of how this plays out. And again, one of the reasons I'm trying to be objective and fair is because I don't want you guys to just take my word for how you should interpret Scripture. I hope that that's something that you and God wrestle with between the two of you. There's this talk of these earthquakes coming and famine and wars and rumors of war, persecution breaking out against the church. So the idealist would say, yes, persecution is a part of the Christian journey. In fact, all views would agree on that, that persecution is the lot of Christianity. Jesus talks about it a lot. The New Testament says, you're going to get persecuted. Faith is hard. You're going to go through troubles. I think a lot of times as Christians, we think, well, you know, if I'm getting persecuted or relationships are uncomfortable because of my faith, I'm doing it wrong. And I, I would push back on that and say, if you're facing no persecution or no difficulty or no challenge in life because of your faith, that's when you're probably doing it wrong. Jesus wasn't just hypothesizing that we might face persecution. Anyways, so the idealist would say, this persecution isn't talking about a specific event, but this is the lot of Christian life. So Jesus is going to tell us a bit of an idea about how to deal with it. And I want you to notice, he says, watch out that no one deceives you. This idea of watching out, standing guard, uh, be aware, be on guard kind of thing is going to repeat throughout the text. The historicist would say, these events are real, but they unfold throughout the whole of history. They're not just, this happens now or this happens at the end of time. It's going to unfold through all of church history where the church is going to continue to go through great persecution. The preterist would say, well, famine, that would be when Vespasian and his uh, military commander Titus laid siege to, uh, to Jerusalem, and they, they caused a famine there. And then the earthquakes and the nation rising against nation was the Romans persecuting Israel and them having this war and burning the temple down. And then the futurist would say, well, that did happen, but what this is actually about is this is about something that's going to happen at the end of time, uh, likely around the time when Jesus comes. There's going to be this great tribulation, this great persecution, these, these, this suffering and wars and stuff like that. Who knows? Like, I think I know, but I'm not going to say which one I think I know. So you must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. So 
here I'm not going to drop into the four views. I actually want to make a few observations about this text itself. So Jesus says this persecution's coming. Apocalyptic texts are never fun. They always promise hard, hardship and persecution. This, this, is, this is a theme that's consistent with all of them. Jesus is saying, if you want to be a follower of me, it's going to be challenging. And I love it because, like I said earlier, the, the call to Christian isn't to say, well, how can I be a Christian and, not, and have it not be difficult, avoid any persecution or hardship? But Jesus actually encourages them to lean into it. He says, you're going to get arrested. You're going to have to stand in front of governors and kings as what? As witnesses to them. Jesus says, you're going to get persecuted? Perfect. Those are the people that need to hear the gospel. Those, I mean, think about at the end of Acts when Paul's on trial in front of the king. He, you know, he, he doesn't, he's not like just trying to like get his way out of it and like try to save his life. What does he do? He just takes the opportunity to share the gospel and to preach. The king actually calls him out on it. He's like, are you trying to convert me? And Paul's like, yes, I am trying to convert you right now. That's all that matters. And that should be the postures of us as Christians. A couple like interpretive notes where I think the church has maybe struggled throughout history here. And I think we could handle this a little bit better. Verse 10, it says, the gospel must first be preached to all nations. A lot of times this has been used as kind of a precursor to Jesus's return, where it's saying the gospel has to be preached to every single person on earth before Jesus can return. As though Jesus in this one sentence has set up a prerequisite. It's like, here's a checkbox that you guys have to mark off so that I'm like kind of unlock the door for me. I don't really think Jesus's timing is like dependent on our action. I don't think he's saying, you know, if you guys could do this so that I can return. We know that Jesus is going to return one day. I mean, that's the hope of the church age that we live in right now. But, but Jesus isn't asking us to unlock the door for him. I think what Jesus is saying is he's offering a mandate in spite of suffering, in spite of hardship, no matter what culture tells you about Christianity, go and make sure the gospel is preached to all nations. That's how I would handle that better. And then the last thing I want to mention is that this idea in verse 11, I've heard this text used where it says, when you're arrested, don't worry about you know, what you'll say. The Holy Spirit will speak through you. I've heard this verse, I think, wrongly be used sometimes as kind of a, um, I don't know, like a strategy for how we do ministry, kind of a mandate for how we would do ministry. It's like, don't prepare, you know, I've heard people say, you know, you don't really need to worry about what you'll say when you have opportunities to think out and share the gospel because the Holy Spirit will just get it. Now, the Holy Spirit's amazing and will provide you in times of need with things to say. But this verse isn't Jesus saying, hey, don't prepare for stuff. I mean, that wouldn't be congruent with the rest of scripture. I mean, First Peter 3, Peter says, uh, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. And in 2 Timothy 4, uh, Paul tells Timothy, he says, be prepared in season and out of season. Be prepared, get ready. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm a passionate believer that Christians should be ready to share their faith story at all time. And it's appalling sometimes how, how unprepared we are. You know, we take a verse like this, it's like, well, we don't have to worry about it, we don't have to get ready, Je Jesus will just take care. Jesus has given you time, he's given you the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's given you your life experiences so that you can put something meaningful together so you can be prepared to give a reason for the hope that lies within you in season and out of season. It's, so, it's such a shame to take a text like this and excuse our apathy and complacency away, our laziness, and say, well, Jesus told us, you know, just, just don't worry about it. I mean, the Holy Spirit provides when we need it. He, he will do that. I mean, I was in Bulgaria. Darren throws me under the bus and throws me on stage to preach without any notice. And I'm like, oh my goodness. And I, I'm just walking up. I'm like, Jesus, like, please, you know, Holy Spirit, speak through me. That's possible. I, I think if you're a follower of Jesus, you should have your one minute 
story of how you came to know Jesus prepared at all times, your three-minute version, your five-minute version, your 15-minute version, your 30 max. After that, it just gets boring, so please don't do that to anybody. But um, Sorry about that. You should be prepared. It's, it's crazy when people, when we have opportunities to share our faith, and we're like, uh, I don't know. When we ask people, can you come up and share your story? And they're like, well, I'm not, get ready, practice. I mean, maybe that sounds weird to practice that, but I mean, this is our mandate. So I could talk about that section for a long time. Let's move on. Brother will betray brother to death. Apparently sisters are better to each other than brothers. And a father, his child. Children, happy Father's Day. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. This idea of persecution continues, and here it goes beyond just some kind of societal persecution, some kind of governmental or uh, cultural persecution. Jesus says, this is going to happen in your families. And there are other parts of Scripture where Jesus says, this is going to cause rifts. And if you're really a follower of Jesus, this is going to cause rifts and tension in your, even your families, even with those who claim to be followers of Jesus or are followers of Jesus, and with those who aren't. This is going to be a hard journey. Two things I think are so important to remember when we're reading an apocalyptic text like this or any other one in Scripture The first one, and this is the most important thing to remember, you you can have any view you want and think any of it means anything you want. I mean, (laughs) within limitations, obviously, but you, you could take whatever view you want. But the most important thing we need to remember is that Jesus Christ is represented as victorious in every single apocalyptic text. Jesus Christ isn't standing back and being like, oh man, persecution's happened. It's out of control. I have no control or authority over this. Jesus is transcendent. He's sovereign. He's in rule and authority over everything that happens here on earth. He's not surprised by persecutions and troubles and hardships. He's not, he's not overcome by that. He's transcended over it. And as a result, the second important thing, not as important, but the second important thing is to realize, as Jesus says, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. The second thing is that we need to persevere and stand firm. As Jesus continues to say it throughout this text, watch, stand firm, be on your guard. We know how the movie ends. You know, sometimes you're sitting on your, the edge of your seat during an action movie, and it's getting really intense, you're like, what's going to happen? You know, and we know the protagonist is always going to win, right? In this story, even more so. Jesus is victorious. Figuring out all the details isn't the most important thing if it distracts you from remembering that Jesus is victorious and we are called to stand firm in our calling and mandate as followers of him. We need to keep moving. Sorry, we've got to cover a lot of ground in a few minutes here. Verse 14, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, how epic of a title is that? The abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong. What I'm wondering is, where the abomination that causes desolation does belong. I would argue probably nowhere. But anyways, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be the days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. It's this continuing theme of persecution. Is it, as the idealist says, a spiritual principle that we should just learn how to live our daily life? Is it, as a historicist would say, an unfolding of the history of the church? Is it, as the preterist would say, something that's going to happen in a few decades and now we look back on it? Or is it, as the futurist would say, something that's going to happen in the distant future that we still look forward to? I don't know. 
And I hope you'll spend some time digging into that. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, elect meaning uh, the saved, the followers of Jesus, whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. In the midst of false teaching, in the midst of a world that will tell you all kinds of things from within the church and from outside of the church that are false, that are anti-gospel, Jesus says, stand firm. And then he says, I have told you everything ahead of time. To which I'm kind of like, have you told us everything ahead of time? Because for the past 2,000 years, the church has been trying to figure out what this text means and kind of arguing about it. But this is what I love about the statement. I have told you everything ahead of time. On secondary things, on the exact meaning of some of the words and events in this text, we can disagree. On the central and important things, the gospel, it's front and center in the text. It's front and center in scripture. Jesus has made known the gospel message that we can put our trust in Jesus because of his death and resurrection and our sins can be forgiven and we can have eternal hope. He has told us everything ahead of time that we need to be able to stand firm in the midst of persecutions, trials, suffering, or anything. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. So just a quick note on, there's more to say about how futurists and preterists would interpret this. This is borrowed text from the book of Isaiah. This is a prophecy from Isaiah. And in the Old Testament, what this is, is this is apocalyptic language that's just talking about judgment that's coming. Uh, God is speaking to the prophet and saying, you guys are going to be judged by another nation. Like God would use another nation to uh, come and punish the Israelites or Babylon or whoever. And he would say, the sun will be dark and the moon won't give its light. The star will fall from the sky. Well, as we know, uh, the sun never went out and the, the stars never fell to earth and blew this thing up. But what came was judgment from God from one nation, uh, taking that on another nation. So then we move to the New Testament and Jesus says this. And the preterist would say, well, it's the same kind of thing, and it's talking about the great persecution against, Rome, or against Israel in 70 AD, where the Romans come in, and it's as though the sun had stopped giving its light. It's as though the stars had fallen from the sky, and there's this great destruction and this great persecution. The futurist would say, that did happen, but this is actually something that's going to happen one day that's way greater and way grander. This, and a lot of them would say this is literal, where the sun is actually going to go out, stars are actually going to start falling and destroying the earth, and there's going to be great destruction. Again, spend some time with that. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. So not about the four views, but talk about a little bit of how some different interpretive options of how people have approached this text. So this idea of Jesus coming and gathering his elect, there are a few different approaches that people take to this. One is uh, this idea, and I'm sure a lot of you have heard of this, of something called the rapture. And again, I'm going to be objective in these, so hopefully you won't know which one I hold to, but this idea of the rapture that we know that Jesus one day is going to come to earth. We know that's going to happen at the end of time. The rapture is this idea that before that, Jesus is going to come part way and take all the Christians away from earth, um, either kind of before or during or at the end of this time of great persecution, and they're going to kind of disappear from earth and leave everyone else there. So that's one view of people that people hold with this text. Another one 
is that some would say, well, uh, what this is actually talking about is when Jesus comes at the very end, and he's not just going to gather his elect uh, away from earth, but what he's going to do is judge all people, the righteous from the unrighteous, like it talks about in Matthew 25, the sheep from the goats, and this is going to be the end of all things. And other people would still would say that what this is talking about is Jesus coming on clouds is actually just language of judgment. Jesus isn't going to physically come, but this is him talking about in 70 AD when Jesus came and judged and through Rome offered, uh, brought judgment on Israel because of their sin. And the gathering of the elect is actually the martyrs, the people who, have, who had died in this great persecution, and Jesus takes them home with him. Again, I'm open to all options. I'm excited one day. I know what I think. I'm excited one day to sit down with Jesus and find out what I'm wrong about. Um, so yeah, let's carry on because I really want to get to this last section here. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Jesus uses this idea of a fig tree kind of showing in advance what's going to happen. And so then the question is, is he talking about literal events that are going to happen soon or thousands of years from now? Is he offering spiritual uh, principles for us to live by? Or is he offering an overview of all time because he's above all time? And we don't know. One, one point in verse 30 that really becomes kind of a point of uh, translational debate is when Jesus says, I tell you, this generation will not pass away before all of this happens. And so the question you have to ask yourself when you're reading this, and I hope you slow down and read Scripture slowly enough to ask these questions, is what does Jesus mean when he says this generation will not pass away before all these things have happened? So some would say he literally means this generation won't pass away, so in the next few decades this is going to happen. Some would say this is Jesus actually forecasting a greater prophecy where he's not talking about the generation of his audience, but he's talking about the final generation at the end of all time. And then some would say, well, it's actually just kind of a metaphorical way of looking at life. Generation means the all of creation, and he's talking about what's going to unfold. I hope by this point you are just uh, dually confused, because in some ways I am a little bit too. What we're going to do now is we're going to look at this last little section and bring this in for a little bit of a landing, for a little bit of a here's what you can wrestle with this week on a really practical level. But I do hope that you'll take some of the, this info home and just be fascinated by the depth and breadth of the gospel and how rich theology is. Theology has to be rich because our God is so rich. He's so grand and so great, and we can lean into him. And if this has been a little overwhelming this morning, if you need, if you have more questions or anything, hit me up anytime. Come talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about scripture. But let's land it here. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. Like a man going away, he leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells no one at the door to keep watch. If you Google a bunch of this stuff, you'll, you'll end up with some pretty crazy websites and some pretty crazy internet and TV preachers out there. And, and so I'd be a little careful with that. I, I'd encourage you to find some people who can recommend some decent resources on any of these views, because you, you'll find a lot of conspiracy stuff out there. But... What's pretty interesting here is that Jesus is talking about something that's going to happen. He's talking about stuff that's happening. He's saying no one knows when this is going to happen. And Jesus says even he doesn't know when that's going to happen. And that's a weird statement because we know that Jesus is God, right? Doesn't God know everything? And this, is, this, this really brings to light a theological idea that we have, and that is that Jesus is fully man, but he's also fully God. We call it the hypostatic union, that Jesus can be 100% human, 
and 100% divine. He's a deity, but he's also human. 100% and 100%. It's kind of weird math. 100 plus 100, some way bigger number. I don't know what it is. But uh, he's, he's fully both of these. And in this moment, and in certain moments, he, he kind of forsakes his divine right. He decides to just lean into his humanness. Like when he dies on the cross. I mean, God can't die, right? But Jesus does that. Or when he comes and he puts flesh on. And here, I love it because Jesus says, I'm not, even, I'm not even practicing my divinity and knowing when this is going to happen. I've forsaken that. And this is a really cool picture of who Jesus is. Because Jesus could just be God sitting on a throne in heaven, comfortable in his glory and richness, and say, hey, guys, by the way, you're going to go through a big persecution. Good luck. But no, he comes down, cloaks himself in human flesh, and says, hey, guys, you're going to go through a great persecution. And before that, I'm going to show you what it looks like to stand firm in the face of great persecution and great suffering as he gives his life on the cross. This is the Jesus of the gospel. He's so good. Way better to us than, than, than we deserve. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task. We've all been given an assigned task. The, the church structure isn't that there's staff and we do stuff and you guys attend. The church structure is that we're a team, we're a body of Christ, and we all have an assigned task. We've all been given gifts and abilities. And here at FPC, we, we, we talk about leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ as our mission. And that's something that all of us have tasks and responsibilities in. And the question I'd ask you is, are you doing your task? Are, are, are you standing firm? Are you watching? Are you being faithful with that? Jesus wraps up by saying, therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, and here it is again, watch, be on guard, be alert. Jesus says, don't let the owner find you sleeping when he returns. We have no idea when we will see Jesus face to face. We have no idea if he'll come back to earth one second from now or millions of years from now. We have no idea how long our lives will last. We have no idea how other, long other people's lives will last. We know that one day we'll be face to face with him. And we know that we don't want him to find us sleeping. Faith is a really active thing. It's not a passive thing. It's, it's not a giant like spiritual nap. It's a thing that we invest ourselves into. If the defining characteristic of your faith is narcolepsy, that's a really bad picture of what your faith looks like. I don't know if you guys know Landon Miller. He's right, you're awake. I'm proud of you. He, uh, he, he well, I, he got diagnosed with some kind of narcolepsy, so he moved from Red Bull to whatever they were prescribing him. Um, and just last weekend, I was just marveling at it because Darren and I were hanging out. It's like the middle of the day. He comes and sits on the bleachers beside us, and in a few seconds, we don't even see it happen. All of a sudden, he's just laying down in this like, really awkward, like sprawled across the bleachers, just dead, like out, unconscious, and just sleeps through the, everything. It's crazy. He just falls asleep everywhere. I saw him one time when I was up here preaching, sleeping right there. Um, called you out on that. That's so often the picture that we paint of our faith in the North American church. We just were so focused on other things that we let it sleep. And I want to bring this into a really practical level. And I want, you, want to give you guys this question to wrestle with this week. And the question is, does my faith need a wake-up call? And I don't mean all of it or, well, maybe all of it, maybe just parts of it. Are there parts of it where you're like, well, I do this, I don't need... Or do you have a holy, alive, and awake faith that's active, that's, that, that's pursuing Jesus relentlessly? 
And I'll bring this really practically to FBC. We have our four things, and this is what we think it looks like and what it means. This is how we define what it means to follow Jesus in a holistic, a complete way. So talk about thinking big, and it means engaging with us in our mission, engaging with the mission of FPC. We're passionate about the church here at FPC. Jesus came and started the church, and here at FPC, uh, we, we have a local expression of that, and we think that's a huge opportunity to be this institution that God created that, that shares the gospel with the world around him, or with the world around us. I guess around him, too. He's like omnipresent and all that. But anyways, and that's an important mission. So my question for you is, are you thinking big? Are you giving of your time to serve, to be a part of the mission actively with your gifts and your abilities? Are you giving? Maybe that's a weird thing for me to be talking about, but like we are so rich, God has hooked us up so much. Are, are, do you believe in the mission of leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ enough to say, hey, you know what, I could contribute to that. I could give up some things so I could give to that. Are you, are you thinking big or are you sleeping? If you're sleeping, then wake up. Are you thinking smaller? Are you engaging in personal relationships? Are you actively pursuing other Christians that you can encourage in their faith, that you can disciple and mentor? And are you actively letting other people encourage and mentor and disciple you? Are you praying for other people? When you see someone new walk into church and you see them sitting by themselves, do you go and do you engage with them and say, hey, I want you to know that we love you and we care about you? Are you praying for people? Are you letting them pray for you? Letting people inside your life, are you sharing your faith journey with others? A lot of that we do through small groups here at FBC. It's not the only way. I mean, we've got like an assigned seating order here at FBC, right? I mean, just turn to the people beside you. Join one of our volunteer teams and get to know people in a deep and real way and invest into them. Are you thinking small or are you asleep? If you're asleep, then wake up. Are you thinking in? And not just in a, I read my one chapter a day check kind of way, but are you saying, God, like, no matter how difficult the text is, no matter what's going on and no matter how many read-throughs it takes me to try to understand this, I just want to spend time with you and know you because I love you. Are you engaging personally with God and saying, God, you're worth my time and energy and motivation? Are you praying in meaningful ways? Are you spending time coming before God and just letting him know how much you adore him and appreciate him and, and, and surrendering your life to him and thanking him and repenting and letting him be deeply a part of your life? Are you thinking in or are you asleep? If you're asleep wake up. This is like the moment where someone's like dozing off and I keep saying wake up and they're like, okay, okay, okay. Landon? No? Okay, you're awake. Okay, good job. Are you thinking out? Here at FBC, this is huge to us. Love your neighbor as yourself. We live in a community where most people don't know the hope found in the gospel, the eternal hope they can find in Jesus Christ, his incredible love and grace. We need to make a difference there. We need to do something about that. Are, do you have your story ready to share with people? Are you talking to people about your faith? Are you taking those opportunities? Are you leveraging your spheres of influence to make Jesus known in our community? Or are you letting fear take over and stepping back from that? Last week, Doug was talking about something huge. And this is, this is what we want to invite all of you to do. And that is to make a list of three people you know, whether they're friends, family, whoever, three people you know who don't know Jesus yet and commit to praying for them every single week, like relentlessly, and ongoing for the rest of your life until they know Jesus Christ. Uh, set a reminder in your phone. I've got a daily reminder in your phone. You can do it. We, we, we want you guys to commit to at least once a week praying for those three people. Put it somewhere where it will remind you. Put it on the dash of your car over your speedometer. If you're like me, you don't use that anyways. So just go. Um, put it on the mirror of your bathroom. If you're like me, you don't use that. It's too depressing. Um, remind yourself to engage with us in our mission in this way. 
We don't just want to invite you to do that. We don't want to encourage you to do that. We want to commission you to be a part of this intrinsic part of the DNA of FBC, that we're a church that prays for people who don't know the eternal hope that they can find in Jesus Christ. And we hope that you'll care enough to take a few minutes every week to pray for those three people. So please join us in that. Are you thinking out? Are you asleep? If you're asleep, wake up. Ask yourself this week, does my faith need a wake-up call? Go wrestle with this text. It's fascinating. But ask yourself, does my faith need a wake-up call? How could I be doing this in a more alive and active and awake way? I apologize that I've kept you a few minutes late today, but why don't you just pray with me? God, thank you that you do not slumber or sleep, but that you are actively involved in our lives. I pray that our response would be the same. This morning, we've talked about a lot of big ideas and concepts, and I pray that you would help us be a church that's passionate about loving you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and all of that. But at the end of the day, our biggest thrust would be to embrace the gospel and to make you known to the community around us, God. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys so much. Have an awesome week.